The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hey everybody and welcome to Shackles, Burlap and Lies. I'm your host Ethan Gilson and this is episode 14. Today I am joined by Chris Schmidt who is the VP and General Manager of Stage Rigging, a Freeman company. Stage Rigging is the company started by the uh, one and only Rocky Paulson who has retired and he sold the company many years ago. How are you doing today Chris? Very well thanks. Thanks for having me on. Oh thanks for being here. So, first question, as always, who are you? Well, as you mentioned, Chris Schmidt. Um, I've been with Stage Rigging uh, for 36 years. I started there while I was in high school, actually, um, which I thought was just going to be three days of part-time work, uh, preparing for the Democratic National Convention when it was here in San Francisco in 1984. And... uh, been there 36 years. I don't know that I've ever actually been hired full time, um, but uh, I'm showing up and I keep paying, so keep doing my thing. Uh, but literally at the time, I thought it was just going to be a temporary project, uh, a couple of days. I'd worked in the industry uh, for a couple of years at some theaters in the area and uh, some of the arenas in the area as a stagehand and in uh, various different capacities. But really kind of took the rigging because I was an avid rock climber. And uh, when I realized that you could actually possibly make a career climbing theaters and arenas and rigging and sort of implementing rock climbing skills into it, I was all in. And uh, spent probably 22-ish years touring. That summer, I was going to save some money for college, ended up uh, going out on tour and never really went to college but that's okay i uh i think the skills learned working directly into the business right out of high school was extremely valuable say that people listening shouldn't go to college (laughs) through that experience but for it just wasn't for me at the time nor i think i don't think it would have been for me at all yeah we go ahead i was gonna say i've mentioned a lot that um you know, people don't go to college to be a rigging designer is a joke. And there's certainly an aspect of our industry where uh, learning on the job and that job experience is important and can get you where you need to go. No, absolutely. No, definitely. Um, and I know that, uh, you know, just watching and listening for the first I mean, almost literally four or five years into my career um, under somebody else's wing was one of the most valuable lessons that I could have gotten um, at all. I think that, uh, you know, the opportunities I had, I didn't realize them at the time, but working at stage rigging, I mean, so much of what we were doing um, was, well, the beginning of the industry standards. you know, they had already, um, in as early as 1980, had uh, hoist service or CMs already lined up and, and ready to go. And in fact, Dave Carmack, when he was with CM, would, would 
gleefully tell you that they stole our checklist for their CM hoist maintenance program. Um, you know, and, and Rocky's attitude always was, and still is, um, you know, imitation is the finest form of flattery. I mean, we'd see other companies building boxes that looked exactly like ours at the time, uh, doing a lot of things that we had already started doing. And quite frankly, we were just making it all up. We thought it was good ideas. We didn't realize that it was still going to be used 30, 40 years later, much less see it written as a standard somewhere. And uh, that was, I mean, I look back on that now and it was a super exciting time for a lot of people because it was still in its, in its infancy. People weren't using truss and hoist as much on shows because they were expensive. And, you know, truss was Roan style truss at the time. And we used a lot of block and falls at the time incorporated with chain hoist. Um, and now, you know, the dentist convention have 400 hoist and thousands of feet of truss at their, in their trade shows. So it's, it's uh, gone from just the theatrical and touring world to everyday businesses. It's kind of fun to see. Absolutely. So one of the things you had mentioned uh, was the making it up side of the business. And I've, I've alluded to that before in terms of Rocky and Roy Bickle and some of the other um, originators Pioneer. of pioneers of arena rigging and, you know, taking a CM hoist and inverting it so that it would climb the chain hoist, uh, things like that. And if I, remember correctly a lot of this was based on uh their first projects were the disney ice shows and kind of creating it there but i i've mentioned before free free climbing beams you know no harness no nothing not even a climbing harness because you just had to get up there and hang the point and they'd go and do it and i think it's important for people to recognize that as they grew in the industry they are some of the people who said okay we did this but we also recognized that it wasn't the smartest choice and they were the ones who spearheaded creating standards to incorporate better safety within our industry no absolutely no uh, yeah absolutely uh, you know fall protection that's a good example um we, uh, you know, when I f first started working for stage rigging, or, uh, you know, we'd go out and take a, a call rigging a show at the, the Cow Palace, which is an arena just south of San Francisco. We're based in San Carlos at the time, which is a suburb between San Francisco and San Jose in California. And then you go to the Cow Palace, 105-foot high building, extremely difficult to climb, not easy to pull points in, and you brought a rope. And maybe brought a climb tool at the time or a shiv if you had a two ton to hang. Um, but that was it. You had a harness probably buried in your car if you had to hang underneath something to get to it, but you didn't wear any of that stuff. And that just, it wasn't even in a mindset or even a thought about that. You just kept telling yourself, don't fall. You know, that's what I do. I don't fall. And, um, Early 90s, and that's not that long ago for many of us. The early 90s is when State Ring and Rocky started looking at fall protection. And we started carrying a very crude uh, set of fall protection stuff on a Neil Diamond tour. And fortunately, uh, Patrick Stansfield, who was a production manager at the time, was 100% behind us doing this. And um, 
So we put in a, a horizontal lifeline system, which I, I'm not going to go into too much detail because I don't want to get sued later, but, <laughs> but it was uh, probably not, everything about it was, was not right. And, but we thought we were doing the right thing because we had something. And uh, then we started learning a lot more about fall protection. We started getting products that were specifically made for that. And then we started implementing it, using it regularly. And it was amazing at the time how much pushback I was getting as the uh, rigor on the tour that had to deal with putting people in harnesses um, prior to a show. And I I had union stewards in, in one city in particular flat out telling me, my guys don't wear this shit. And this is a union star, a, a union steward at a fairly well-known arena. And uh, it was kind of stunning to hear that, uh, especially coming from a, a, you know, a union organization that's primary function is to protect the worker. And that was mid, uh, it was early 90, 92 or 93, I think when that happened. And again, that doesn't, it seems long ago to people that are a lot younger, but to me, I still remember the nineties well. And, uh, and that's when fall protection started. You know, you think about it now, how quickly it's moved in the industry that, you know, if you told somebody to just go climb out on a beam and hang a point, the first thing they're going to do by nature is go get their harness, harness up and start uh, doing it. You know, if you told them, you know, just forget that, just go do it. They'd look at you like you're out of your mind and would probably refuse to do it, which is exactly the way it should be. Absolutely. And go ahead. I was going to say it, it's one of the things that I think uh, we can attribute to uh, labor representation is worker safety and, and pushing things forward so that the law uh, reflected what the organizations felt should be required as an employer for putting someone in a risky position. Yeah. No, it, uh, it just, I, I, I'm happy that it's gone where it's gone, but I still think there's a lot of work to be done uh, in our industry in particular when it comes to fall protection as far as, I mean, you know, the first step was getting people to, to use it regularly, I think is uh, that, that hurdle has been overcome. I think what's what um, the next challenge for our generation and us is, members of companies and trade organizations is going to be getting the training and the uh, planning component of fall protection in general, uh, more mainstream. Uh, You probably get out quite a bit as I do. And a lot of arenas and theaters have fall protection, but nobody's ever been officially trained on how to use it or much less have a plan or if somebody does fall, how do you rescue them and how do you, what, what's the plan? And uh, I think that's, that's the next hurdle for the industry to overcome. Yeah, I, I was just uh, doing a site visit for a, a theater that's looking at incorporating some new fall arrest, restraint protection um, in their space. And they made, you know, they were trying to figure it out on their own which is not a bad thing to start at, but they very quickly became overwhelmed because the the general rules that they knew of didn't fit some of the hazards that they were finding. For instance, a box boom position that's 
basically in an alcove and the challenges of how do they do it properly. Um, so I went in to consult with them and we we're talking about different ideas. And that's where the concept of really starting with fall protection and fall restraint comes in. Because then if there's no fall, there's no rescue. So if you can go with the strength and stop someone from falling at all, then it simplifies things. And I think that's important for people to remember is that hierarchy of, okay, first thing is eliminate the risk of falling. If you can't, let's go fall restraint. And if you can't do that, your last choice is fall or rest. But as you mentioned, you have to have planning, you have to have training, you have to have practice all those things so that if someone unfortunately falls, you're ready to act and you can get them down pretty quickly. And we've covered this multiple times in different podcasts, but it's yeah. very important, which is great because that's one of the questions I ask my guests is where do you think we need to make advances in our industry? Um, so you've kind of gone there already. Are there any other areas besides the fall arrest that uh, you either think the industry needs to move in a direction on or is moving on something that you're glad to see? Uh, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, I think um, we, we joke about this at our warehouse at our shop all the time about the gag flex span set argument. And I think that, you know, trust attachments, you know, it, it, I think fall protection training and rescue planning is, is huge high on the list. Don't get me wrong here, but I also think that there's still a lot of myths out there about uh, sling usage and attachment to truss um, using yeah. various different medium. Um, I'm not opposed to the GAC flex, but quite frankly, I don't use them very often. I don't, uh, we don't require them. Um, our company policy is that we don't force them on people. Uh, if a lot of people want them and a lot of people request them and it makes the jobs a lot easier in various different venues where the venues require them because they don't, they were told that by somebody. Um, but I think that, that sling usage and attachment to trust or anything for that matter. And I just, I keep saying trust because it's sort of a generic term, but it could be the PA system or, or whatever. Uh, I think that the, the, the one area that we, we really as an industry need to start looking at is how do we attach the hoist to the, whatever it is we're lifting. And, uh, you know, I think there's been, there's been a huge shift to the steel flex or the GAC flex sling trust manufacturers now have, put out some really cool um, pickup bars and various different uh, types of lifting brackets and stuff, which is awesome. I love them all. Um, and, but the classic span set gag flex argument and then, you know, redundancy and how far do we take it? Um, right. Well, it's, it's funny to me that people all pose the question to me and they're like, well, you know, let's eliminate the, the fire situation or heat situation and focus on redundancy they'll say oh well i'd rather use two span sets on a point instead of one basketed because it's redundant but you're going to a single hoist with likely a single shackle off of the lower suspension so where are you stopping that redundancy and often what i'll reply to people is from an engineering standpoint 
redundancy does not mean two. We tend to assume it does because that's usually how we portray it or perceive it, I should say. But right. you, can, you can have redundancy in design factor. You can have redundancy in the design of the strength of the object you're using. So that chain hoist has redundancy in it. It has design factor. And if you stay within its operating parameters, you'll be fine. So, yeah, it, it's funny how people latch onto certain things. When you do incorporate the heat thing, when I do my trainings, I'll spend some time talking about the melting point of the span set, which is in comparison to a lot of the other materials we're using, pretty low, 200 degrees uh, is the minimum melting, uh, according to OSHA. And then let's look at the melting point of 6061 truss. Let's look at the melting point of steel. Let's look at the melting point of all these other materials. Then let's start looking at what the average building temperature is during a fire. And when you right. start looking at all those things, the uh, steel flex is 400 degrees maximum working condition. The synthetic sling is 200. So for an extra 200 degrees, great. It sounds wonderful. The problem is your average building fire temperature is going to be over 1100 degrees. And, right. you, and, and that's average. It can get a lot higher. Now, I'm not saying, hey, if you have pyro on your truss and it's right near your span set, that's the... Maybe what I'm getting to is it's all about risk assessment and about looking about the appropriate use of the tool that in that application, the sling, uh, synthetic sling may not be the right choice, but it doesn't mean that it's not a good choice for a 40 foot piece of truss with 12 LED lights on it in a ballroom. Yep. No, I, I couldn't agree more with what you just said. I, I you know, it's funny when I, I do the training classes, uh, Training classes quite a bit as well, and uh, if I may, I'm just going to plug our classes that we have stage rigging in San Francisco once a month. Um, but we've postponed them due to the coronavirus. But we do a four-hour class once a month uh, on the same aspects that we would do in our three-day uh, class that we would have taken out to various different labor unions and, and companies around the country. But the first thing I tell people in those classes after the brief introduction is, you know, how do you rig something? How do you teach somebody to rig something? And anybody who's been rigging for more than 18 months can understand this, is that you, you don't, I mean, there's certain practices that we have in place that are pretty standardized, but as you start advancing in your career, you're going to start coming across stuff that you can't believe somebody wants to hang that, you know? And 36 years, there's still uh, not a month that goes by where I don't get a phone call with some unique project that, is going to require having to figure it out. And that's the beautiful thing about rigging is it's never the same, but how do you as a rigger determine and figure out how to rig these items? And I'm a firm believer. You mentioned a tool and what I tell everybody in these classes is all of these things are tools in our toolbox. And as riggers, the best way to advance in your career is to learn as much about those tools available to you uh, in your toolbox uh, and how to use them properly and understand the limitations and understand the design factors of them and what are they based on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, uh, that in my mind is the key to, to rigging. And then 
once you determine that and you can design your load path, if you will, from top to bottom, I tell our guys, I said, you know, be prepared to have to justify this. Uh, I have an engineer friend of mine that does a lot of the analysis for a lot of the structures we work with, and he uses the term defend all the time. And, uh, you know, we put a temporary structure out there. They design it to the, the uh, you know, temporary structure standards. And, you know, I talk to him after the fact and, you know, ask him about it. And he's like, yeah, well, we feel very comfortable with this analysis. We can defend this to any building or code official. And that was a term that I picked up years ago from him. And I've been using a lot and and telling our guys this. I said, look, if you're doing something unconventional, people are going to ask questions, which they should. And I strongly recommend people asking questions at any time. Hey everybody, I want to take a quick minute during this episode to mention a great online training opportunity that not only will allow you to learn something, but help support the Technical Standards Program, which is run by ESTA. If you go to tsp.esta.org and click on the link on the right-hand side for the CM Online Lodestar Maintenance Training, it will take you to an information page. And basically, here's the deal. 100% of the fee that you pay for this one-day class will go directly to the TSP. This means that all the work that's done creating and maintaining the ANSI standards for our industry is going to be supported by you learning something. That's a great opportunity. It's a win-win for everyone. So again, tsp.esta.org. Click on the link on the right-hand side for the CM Online Lodestar Maintenance Training and sign up for that class through that link. I'll also put that link on the notes for this episode. Thanks, and now back to our show. So let's see, I think I was on my rant about uh, tools. And asking knowing- and asking questions. Don't asking- be afraid to ask questions and, and uh, trust but verify. Yeah, trust and verify. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, so kind of getting back to that telling, you know, how do you defend your plan? Uh, well, you you know, prepare the paperwork or, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to memorize all the numbers of all the breaking strengths and minimum working load limits and all that great stuff. But the older I get, the harder it is to remember that. So oftentimes if I'm doing something where I'm going to be asked or somebody's going to you know, verify or ask questions because they've never seen that before and you're prepared to give the answers uh, or paperwork to back that up, um, it, it can solve a lot of potential drawn out issues for riggers. Um, so knowing as much, I mean, I'm a firm believer in knowing as much about the tools available uh, to do rigging uh, as possible and, uh, and look for new stuff. Um, I think that's another area that in rigging in general, uh, riggers get complacent. They've been using it. Why were you doing it that way? Well, the guy before me told me to do it this way, and the guy before him told him to do it this way, and this is the way we do it. That's cool. But, you know, one of the biggest innovations in rigging in the last 20, 25 years was deck chain or stack chain. You know, all it is is big link chain. But, you know, we didn't use it. When I started, you took a span set and you doubled it and tripled it up to get adjustment, added shackles, took some shackles out, you know, took an extra wrap. Then out comes a piece of chain with three inch links and it's like a brilliant invention. It's been around forever. Still one of the oldest technologies known to man, but it was, uh, it was a big innovation for us. And uh, some people I think were a little suspect at first because they hadn't seen it. 
And then people started thinking, well, I can use any kind of chain. And then you start getting into the issues about, well, what kind of chain is it? And is it got an overhead rating or is it available for um, hanging from? And what's the link size and what are you doing with it? And et cetera, et cetera. And so that yeah. it opened up a whole nother can of worms on top of solving some, some problems for us. Right. That does bring up an interesting thing. If we do, uh, we have some international listeners to the podcast and for them, uh, a for our, our us based listeners, um, in Europe, they don't use stack chain as much. They're starting to use it more, but they would use smaller diameter chain and chain grabs, which is basically a device that allows you to connect to a chain anywhere in it. You don't have to put a shackle pin through the chain link. It actually externally grabs onto the chain. So the advantage was you can have, let's say, a 5 inch chain, like on a one-ton motor, hoist, and you can go link to link. You could get one-inch increments of adjustment. The downside is, depending on the design of that chain grab, there's a pin that holds it in place, you know, a, a sliding pin that locks it in place. And those are notoriously not trustworthy. So the concern is, well, it doesn't take much to dislodge that chain grab from the chain. Is that an issue? Well, if it's under load, no. But if it's kind of bouncing around when you're building your points, maybe that's a concern. So, yeah, there have been a lot of different things used to try to solve this adjustment issue. Also, uh, Steve Kendall, who's local here to the Boston area, he had K-Links, which was a soft chain. Basically, imagine a six-inch span set looped together to form a daisy chain. And you could use those by removing one of the sling segments and shortening or lengthening your adjustments. So... Are those are well, they are those still are they still in manufacture? I haven't seen them in a long time. I mean, I remember when they first came in, they were we had a bunch of them at one point. I'm not sure. I know that Steve is still running uh, Rigstar out in Springfield, Massachusetts. Uh, he does a lot of trainings. He uh, certainly, like the rest of us, I'm sure he's not actively doing much these days in person. Um. But I don't know if he's still making those. I also believe for a while he was uh, had his own line of chain hoists, which like uh, a lot of companies, you start with a CM hoist as a base and you modify it or have them modify it. Um, so, yeah, not sure. I've I've never run into them uh, in the wild to say so. Yeah, oh. got you mentioned chain grabs. I love those. Uh, those assemb- We had some assemblies built uh, a couple years back. Um, I'd seen them in Australia 25, 30 years ago and uh, in Europe as well. And was, I, I had a heck of a time trying to find them in the U.S. and actually finally got our, our wire rope supplier to um, build some and manufacture some. And uh, you're right about the, uh, the pin could potentially dislodge. Um, and is something that you need to be somewhat aware of, but, uh, I, you know, so far we've had a lot of success with them last couple of years. And, uh, I think that that's, I don't know if you, how much, how many of those have you seen, uh, on the East coast? Um, 
Hey, outside of the two that I own, I own one for quarter inch and five sixteenths inch, which are conveniently the sizes for CM chain hoists. Um, and I use them in uh, load testing. But from a production rigger standpoint, where I think they would be handy as a tool for a rigger is an efficient way of, if you're in an, uh, an application where you need uh, three or four feet of hoist chain at the top of uh, when you're pulling a point, brain needs to start working. When you're pulling a point, if you needed three or four feet of chain loose to be able to reach your point or something, normally what people do is they tie a clove hitch three or four feet down the chain and you pull it from there. Well, you can use a chain grab to do the same thing. So that's kind of a convenient tool. It's kind of like uh, a Haven's grip for wire rope. Same idea. You can get further away from the thimble. Um, but I've never seen them used in making points or in rigging itself only as a tool for making points or okay. working so we because we the reason i'm asking is i just hadn't seen them in the states and they i know they well, australia was the first place that i actually saw them and we used them at the entertainment center on a show i was rigging in there years ago and and we were adjusting bridles and nailing it in seconds um using those uh, so we I, I ended up getting them not so much for bridling uh, but for, uh, we do a ton of work at the Las Vegas convention center because our parent company is one of the largest trade show service providers. Um, so we have to, the, the South hall, uh, in Las Vegas has got, um, fixed points. And, uh, of course the fixed points went in on sort of a grid pattern, but they put them in after everything else went in, or they put stuff in after the points went in, which, as any rigger has no is probably seen, you're like, why would you put an air duct underneath a hang point? It's become useless at this point. So, but we um, we use them for dead hanging trusses. Uh, put them on either end of a truss, and then we can get that truss as high or as close to whatever obstacle we're trying to rig around um, without too much uh, effort. You know, and it's right. I, um, I what I like about them is they they you, you reduce the amount of loose parts that you have in the system. Um, and in fact, you can, these have a pair ring on one end with a hook grab in the pair ring. And then we have six and three foot lengths of chain with a, with a latch lock hook at the other end. So we put the hook into the, uh, the hang point, the pair ring at the bottom or the oval at the bottom connected to the truss. So really the only loose component you have is the whole assembly with the truss uh, when you take it up and you, the hook in and then you can make the adjustment to the, the truss and this is all dead hung truss so it's not very heavy at the time it's all unloaded but it allows you to get within literally uh you know an inch of whatever you're hanging from right very quickly without having to you know prior to that the, the, the practice was to hang a five footer and then start messing with shackles and deck chains and trying to come up with ever whatever combination and and that is just highly inefficient and somewhat dangerous in that you've got bunch of loose parts that you're taking apart and putting back together while you're trying to make that attachment. So, right. Well, and you alluded, you alluded to it earlier and the, the typical term is a shackle chain where you take a series of shackles and connect them together. And the, again, there's a lot of perception about, Oh, you can't do that. If you do it, it has to be bell to bell. You should never go pin to pin. 
there are appropriate ways to do pin to pin. The concern is, do the shackles end up off axis? Is your force not going straight through both shackles? And often what you'll see is people will make spacers, whether it's washers or rubber gaskets, to keep the pins lined up so they sit correctly. Mm -hmm. But you never have those in your box when you're ringing the truss in the ballroom or convention center and you're trying to... Now, where I see it a lot is you're, you're hanging another truss underneath a primary truss and you're trying to get that height correct. You want to get that much. So it's okay, I got my span set set and I got a shackle. Well, I need another two inches lower or two inches higher. And you're spending minutes and minutes, if not tens of minutes, trying to figure out the configuration so you can make it happen. You're like, great, I got the first one done. And you go to the second one and something's just different enough that it doesn't work. Yeah. So that finer adjustment will speed things up. Oh, no, definitely. No, I know exactly and what you're talking about. Yeah, it's, it's grab two span sets and they're none, none of them are the same length. Exactly. Or even, you know, five foot wire sling or whatever. But, uh, there's always just enough difference that it's, it's not the same. Yeah. That will never change, I think. That will always be the same. It'll always be different. Oh, <laughs> well, absolutely. It's just... It, even even with manufacturers uh, that make wire rope slings with uh, Flemish eyes, it's based on a person measuring and doing it. So they can get as they can get very close, but even a thirty seconds of an inch difference changes loading. Span sets stretch over age, so you have an older span set and a brand new one. It could be a quarter of an inch half an inch but that does make a difference um and that's kind of the idea of as you grow within the profession of rigging you learn tricks you learn some things to be more efficient and that's really what it's about is how efficient can you be and maintain the safety not rushing and compromising the safety but doing it quickly because we never have enough time to do what the the client has asked us to do. Yeah, that seems to be the, the case oftentimes. And yep. uh, I think that, um, you know, to add to that a little bit, I think educa client education is, you know, I think there's a certain mystique about rigging, whether it was because people actually knew what they were doing or thought they knew what they were doing. But uh, I think that one of the things that's, that's, been been very helpful with us is is telling our clients exactly how and why we're doing what we do the way we do it um, because they they don't know and it is a scary thing for somebody that's never seen you know and tons of lighting and audio gear hanging over their performers heads or the ceo's head uh, or whomever it may be um but when you can, again, you're almost, it goes back to the defending discussion. Uh, you know, if you can, if you can educate your clients using the same methods that you would have to defend your position with a code official or somebody and, and help them understand what's going on. Um, we've, we've had a relationship with a fairly big tech company for, for decades now, and uh, they know what to look for in a rig and they'll ask the question. They're not riggers, and they will admit that, but all of the events team has been educated on what to look for and, and 
little things to look for that could become a big deal if they're not done correctly. That's been super helpful. And it's also strengthened the relationship. Don't be afraid to explain to the people that you're working for why you're doing something the way you're doing. Yeah. The term I've used for years or I, I learned has been managing the client's expectations that you get yourself in trouble when the client is able to uh, perceive what the end result will be unrealistically. And your job within sales is to manage the expectations. Um, You always want to be able to say yes. You always want to make the client happy, but being able to do so realistically is the challenge and saying, okay, I can't do that because of X, Y, and Z, but here's what I can offer as a solution, which is part of the reason why I eventually shifted away from lighting because I got so frustrated with uh, that is the wrong shade of blue in an uplight. It's like, well, there's a million shades of blue versus there's no wrong shade of gravity. It is, it is gravity. It is a law of, you know, physics can't get away from it. Can you do this? No. Why? Because it will fall. Yeah. No, I, I love that. I love that term. Somebody mentioned that years ago. It's a gravity. It's not just a good idea. It's a law. You know? Yeah. Good by that. But you're right. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, we do our jobs as riggers. When you do a job well, nobody knows you did it. And uh, the only time they do know you did it is usually when it's the outcome wasn't great. So um, we uh, like to stay off the radar as much as possible. Certainly. So that does kind of bring up one of the questions that I usually ask, which is what is uh, what is one of the rigging horror shows that you have come across and certainly leave out any details. We don't want to, you know, place blame on people. But you ever walk into a situation that was particularly bad that made it, you know, memorable or a situation that you walk into and say, wow, this is bad. And we're able to figure out a unique solution to overcome the previous existing issue. Um, you know, uh, overseas, well, two, two, two places that come to mind right out of the gate when you, when you ask that question is uh, schools, um, schools, uh, theaters and school campuses, whether they're college campuses or elementary schools. Um, I've come across a lot of stuff that I was amazed that uh, A, was still there and and B, somebody actually installed it that way. Um, And, you know, there's some pretty big universities around the Bay area. And there was one in particular that I went in to go look at putting in a, um, they wanted to add some fall protection uh, for a box boom area. And uh, also put in some uh, beams and trolley systems for getting dimmer racks up to catwalk and that kind of thing, good catwalks and stuff. And they had a focus track out in front of the house that was just, I mean, I was shocked. Um, and it was a textbook I did, you know, it ended up leading me into doing an inspection for them. And it was the textbook case on really what not to do on every single point for this focus track. And I took pictures and I put um, 
you know, references to the various different OSHA regulations and standards that address each and every one of those. And, uh, and uh, I mean, they corrected it almost immediately to their, um, to their credit, but the, the part that I had a problem with was that it had been there for years and nobody looked or even thought about it. And it was a focus track. So if somebody was on it, a human being was on it almost every other day, um, accessing the, the front of house lighting positions. Um, so those, you know, I, I, I don't want to diss the school system because I'm sure they're <laughs> strapped for cash these days, but the, I mean, it's, it's just the access that people have in a school uh, setting and the the amount of them around the, the country and not all of them, I mean, they, they really need to be looked at, I think. Um, yeah, it's, it's the aspect of well-intentioned people uh, trying to use the space they have within the means that they have and in intentionally creating uh, risky situations. And another one that uh, I share from the financial world is past performance is no guarantee of future results. Just because it hasn't fallen yet does not mean it won't fall. Uh, technically speaking, everything is going to fall. If we hung up a truss on whatever, uh, chain hoist or dead hung, and we walked away, at some point in the future, it's going to fall. It could be 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, a millennium. It will eventually fall. Everything needs preventative maintenance. However, it's a question of time. Does it get overloaded? Uh, fatigue rating is something that uh, rigging hardware you have to consider. So again, it's not that people intentionally do make bad choices they just they don't know you have schools where the music teacher is in charge of the drama department in the theater and that's what they're given to work with and they make a choice or a parent in a school says hey let's build this set let's hang the set let's hang it with jack chain from the local box store because that's what hangs the swings and that's what we're going to use not realizing it's not appropriate for overhead suspension so that's certainly a good topic of, you know, areas of concern. Yeah, definitely. No, the hardware selection and everything else is just, uh, I mean, it's well-intentioned certainly, but, uh, but I think that's, a, that's, those are always venues that whenever I go into them, whether it's just going to see a help my son with his school shows or, or, um, uh, going in for a business related thing. The other, right. the other area that has been uh, was a challenge was over, uh, tra traveling overseas and uh, going into some venues. We were in a venue over in Asia and walked in and went, oh, look, they got the rig already hanging for us. And uh, thought, well, this is going to be an easy day. That was the first mistake uh, I made was thinking it was going to be an easy day. Hey, we better go up and check this out. So I, I went up and it looked like they had 20 and a half inch truss and it was about 20 and a half inch truss size grid that they had installed. But when I went up to the ceiling to look at how it was rigged, it was literally all rigged with hemp, three quarter inch hemp rope. And uh, you know, big issue with hemp, natural fiber, 
how old is it? Um, where did it come from? Who's the manufacturer? I mean, everything about this, the more I started looking at it, was uh, horrendous. And it was well-intentioned, again. But uh, we didn't have time to go in and take it all down. It was de They dead-hung it. Um, I'm not sure how they hoisted it into place, but they had dead hung it on hemp rope, essentially. And, uh, I mean, I'll never forget walking in there and looking at this thing going, oh, this is going to be an easy day. And then I went upstairs and looked and like, oh, my God, this is going to be a long day. Right. Uh, so we ended up um, rigging a bunch of stuff around it and uh, using uh, some of the, the production trusts that we had to shore the thing up and uh, – and basically re-rigged it all without without re-rigging their stuff directly. So we just kind of re-rigged around the whole thing. But I think the point that I'm trying to make here is that you just can't look blindly at it. I mean, if you see something hanging, oh, great, we'll use that. Well, somebody needs to go up and look to make sure that whatever's in that load path is adequate to support the load. And, uh, you know, if you're not sure, then then – rig around it or rig to it or shore it up or whatever you've got to do. But you can certainly, there's, there's definitely ways to, to add redundancy or, uh, you know, take some of the, the potential hazards away by assessing how the, the whole rig is hanging there and what it's hanging from and then determining what your, what your loads are. You know, it's like I was telling people, I said, you can, you can hang a hundred helium balloons off of that. No problem. But right. You know, would you hang, um, you know, 2,000 pounds off of that? And those are the things you need to ask yourself. The other the other thing that I, and it's kind of shifting away from that topic a little bit, but one of the other things that I, I want to mention, and I think a lot of people tend to overlook this, especially when they go into a venue where there's a hang point that they're not sure what it's anchored to or how it's designed or, you know, uh, Concrete anchors are, are the, the, one of the biggest examples I can give. You can always proof test these things. Um, you know, put a, put a load on it in a controlled setting with a load cell or a dynamometer and, and take it to two or three times what it, you intend to hang off of it. And uh, if you do it in a controlled setting... Uh, with, you know, your counterweight or load or whatever you want to, whatever system you want to use, you can, you can check to see if the thing's going to fail uh, once you, once you load it. Uh, we've, we've taken, you know, I've taken a, a five foot piece of truss and uh, come along with a dynamometer on it up in a lift to attach it to an eye bolt and, you know, we, okay, we want to hang a 500 pound, whatever it is off of here and take it to 2,500 pounds see if that thing's going to pull out and hold. Uh, and if you destroy it, that so be it. Then that way nobody can use it again. Um, and that's probably the best thing that could happen. But I just, I think that we tend to want to, uh, you know, either blindly look at this stuff or, uh, well, we can't hang off of that. Well, why not? Well, nobody knows anything about it. Well, that's not a bad instinct to have to start with, but if you're, Given, you know, you're, you're not given any other choice, you can always proof test these things. Yep. And I think it should be, it is important to mention that. So I mentioned the uh, past performance is no guarantee statement. Proof testing is slightly different because proof testing is 
placing a load for our application as riggers, placing a load or a force on an object that is greater than what we want the working load limit to be. So for instance, OSHA states that any field fabricated uh, rigging hardware has to be proof tested to 125% of its intended working load limit. So you're not going to put a thousand pounds on it. You're going to put 1,250 pounds on it. And then you are going to carefully record what happened. And for a, you know, the concrete anchor point, did it move at all? Is that plate pulling away from the concrete? Or is there any noticeable deformation of any of the hardware or materials? So it's not just oh, we threw the weight up there and that's proof tested. There's actually a scientific process to it to say that you have to follow in order for it to be a good proof test. Um, so I want to mention that because there is a difference. Yes, absolutely. No, take measurements, flow measurements over time, check. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to interrupt today's episode again to mention that if you've enjoyed listening to me ask questions to my guests and hearing their answers, and maybe you had some questions about our industry that aren't related to entertainment rigging, you should head over to controlbooth.com. It's a great online community that's available 24-7. You can find safe and accurate answers to your questions. It's really friendly. There's a massive wiki that continues to be updated about the terms we use in the business. Recently, they added a calendar of webinars, so if you're looking for online training opportunities, you can find them there. And the entire site is dedicated to our industry. The other thing I'll mention is there are some really great people who spend time there helping each other out. Professionals, people just breaking into the business, people who work in education, it's just a great community. I spend a lot of time there. I highly recommend that you check it out, read, post comments, answer questions. It's a great resource. And now back to this week's episode. Now that I asked, you know, what's what are horror stories? What's one of the best projects you've worked on or your favorite project? Oh, that's going to be... Um... Well, one of the most recent projects I did, which was a challenge, which I really enjoyed, was a um, a 72-foot wide by 24-foot high uh, LED screen image that I had two and a half feet to rig it in. Um, Ooh. In a fixed, yeah, it was at the Moscone West Convention Center, which is eye bolts on 11 foot three inch centers, um, 10 by 10 or 11 by three inch centers uh, with a 5,000 pound capacity. So the, the capacities are good with the, the fixed points, but it's a false ceiling. So you have an eye bolt at 26 foot three inches to the bottom of the eye bolt, and I had to get a 24 foot image. Um, I forget if it was 12 or 18 inches off the floor itself. Um, and so, you know, when I ran the numbers on the wall and then started looking at where we were going to put the hang points, I ended up having to figure out how to get, uh, you know, one ton CM hoist inside a 12 by 18 box truss. That was, uh, so I, I built some brackets in our shop and 
measured it and catted it out a hum- umpteen dozen times and then put some pieces together to try and see how they were going to fit together and had to have truss pieces laid out in certain orders, a certain order for this. Because the screen was also, not only was it tall and wide, it was also at an angle to the hang points. So uh, it was spread out, you know, with about a four foot over 72 foot angle to it. Mm. So that, that was, uh, that was a challenge. I mean, it was for a corporate show. It wasn't a, a you know, big, um, probably all that well-known of a company, but it was just one of those projects that, that, you know, and, and I'm thankful I have the opportunity. We have a 20,000 square foot warehouse where I can lay stuff out and, and figure it out in, in person, in addition to catting it out, because I mean, you can cat every inch in, uh, until you get there on site and realize that you forgot about one the height of the cheeseboro and the CAD wasn't the actual height of the cheeseboro on site or something along those lines. And, yeah, it's, you know, it's it's particularly true the saying that no plan survives first contact uh, within the rigging industry. Um, we work in the physical world. We can plan it out as much as you want and do as many drawings, but without fail, when you get on site, something is just going to change it. And we've talked about in previous episodes with the engineers of talk with your engineer now that you've changed something or, you know, have a rough plan for, okay, how do I deal with the unknowns and, and having resources to deal with that? Yeah, no, definitely bring backup components. I have a backup plan. Um, Once you, once you press go, it's hard to undo it. Have you, have you guys, and this is related to a question I usually ask people, which is, is there a widget or product or tool that you're pretty enamored with recently? And you had mentioned chain grabs before and different things. Have you guys, as a rigging supplier, invested in any of the LED, spe- I'll use the term specific trusses that have a fifth cord that's designed to uh, make hanging LED walls a little more efficient, especially in that trim height side. Because one of the conversations I had with Jeff Reeder in last week's episode was the challenge of LED walls and his concern of misloading trusses on their panel points or node points um, and how you deal with that. So in this load trim application where your points are at a fixed distance apart, were you using regular trust? Have you guys invested in any of the LED wall trusses to say? Or yeah. on a different yes, direction? No, um, we, we have invested uh, in LED wall trusses. Um, a lot of fork end trusses, uh, low profile 12 inch by 12 inch fork end style trusses, thick wall. Um, a lot of the reason uh, the more recent stuff that we bought is uh, the fifth cord truss for sure. And uh, one of the things that I, I used on this um, same video wall project that I really like, and uh, I mean, can I mention company names? Yeah. Yeah. I, again, I, I'll give equal opportunity to everyone. I think it's important for us to talk about tools and the advantages and disadvantages. So until someone wants to start sponsoring the podcast, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> yeah, it's all fair game. So Extreme Structures Integrated Hangpoint uh, stuff is, uh, I've been using that a lot lately and for different stuff because I'm a huge fan of turnbuckles. Um, Yes. 
and being able to incorporate the the hang point directly into whatever and and you know ironically enough i'm using it completely the opposite way it was intended i think it was intended to be hung from those integrated hang points which is awesome if you can get the hang points to line up um and fortunately working in a, a, a convention center here in san francisco where everything is on a fixed distance it's it's relatively easy to do that but for, in the real world it's not always ideal uh, you don't always end up with that ideal situation but I use it the opposite way around in that I'm reducing the amount of stuff I have to put on the truss to get uh, hang points inside of a truss. Um, I had built some brackets a long time ago uh, to hang some stuff for a client by putting pro stars inside a 12 inch box truss. And we do this all the time now to save headroom and uh, yep. stars and, and, uh, at the time, custom brackets, but now with the integrated hang point truss, I don't have to butts around with the custom bracket stuff anymore, which is great because it's just one less thing I have to deal with. So that stuff has been awesome. The fifth cord truss is awesome. And then uh, we, uh, we also had some custom 20 and a half inch uh, built to house I-beam, uh, not only for tracking uh, walls back and forth, but also just to have um, put standard trolleys on. Uh, so the I-beam is mounted up inside of the 20 and a half inch truss. It's about six inches from uh, the top of the I-beam is about four to six inches from the outside top portion. Right. Of half inch. So it's really buried up inside there as, as high as we could get it. Um, and that's come in handy. Uh, you know, I, I, originally it was for moving uh, video walls, tracking back and forth on an automation system. But we've done some projects recently where we had to get stuff out over seats. And so we'd rig this truss uh, with trolleys in it, fly the truss out over the seats, and then pick up what we needed to get out over into the seats and just physically push it out there on your basic uh, you know, trolley, I-beam trolleys. And um, so I think, I, you know, I... I I, you know, to all the truss manufacturers out there, keep coming out with new stuff, you know. It's... Uh, it's again, you know, the, the standard 12 inch box truss that everybody's been using for years and years and years, which is a workhorse in the industry or the 20 and a half inch, same thing. But why not add that integrated fifth cord? Everybody wants to hang down the center line of the truss anyways. So why not make it so? Right. And, and they did. And uh, so a lot of that stuff, I mean, I'm, I'm very pleased to see that. Uh, I think the other thing that's really cool lately is some articulating corners and or load bearing hinges, if you will, um, and that a lot of stuff, you know, I, I think one of the wankiest pieces of hardware was your basic bookend hinge for, for truss that, you know, everybody's always afraid of because it, A, it literally looks kind of wanky and B, it's, it's got no structure to it whatsoever. All it does is keep the truss pieces aligned. Yeah. It's an alignment tool, not a suspension tool. Exactly. And so riggers tend to spend hours trying to figure out how to support that. And, you know, what are you guys doing over here? Well, we're trying to get all four cords supported, blah, blah, blah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I, so that kind of stuff I think is great. And, and the lifting brackets, I mean, it's just, it's, I, I keep asking myself what took so long, you know, with some of that stuff. Yeah. But it, 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 it's a constant struggle that i have of saying hey this is such a simple idea why is anyone making it 
and you know, when you get into manufacturing, there's expense and cost and, and that side of it. And to make something profitable um, is its own science and art. But yeah, the, the development is great. And and that's not to say that there aren't some pretty uh, ingenious solutions that don't require you to spend money to buy new products. So we were talking about hanging LED walls uh, a few years ago uh, at the Event Safety Summit. My friend Louis D'Souza, who's a rigger out of uh, Rhode Island in Connecticut, was the production rigger, and they had a big LED wall. And I took my class over to to look at how we're doing stuff. And they had used span sets to hang the wall. And I went up to him before I took the, 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 the students over, and I said, hey, you know, whose decision was it to hang the wall? Because we had just talked about misnoting or misloading trusts. And he's like, right. well, what wasn't mine? So we took the opportunity for him to tell the students what he likes to do. And his was a pretty simple idea. He works at a casino um, where they get a lot of uh, corporate events that come in. He's a fan of taking a 20 and a half inch truss and he would cheeseboro a pipe to the center top of the truss and use five eighths inch pair rings and turnbuckles off of that. So mm-hmm. the only thing he had to buy quote unquote new was the term buckles but they had hundreds of pair rings which so you slip the pair ring over the pipe and that's your pipe clamp or cheeseboro clamp or whatever it is and your term buckle attaches to that so he worked with a lot of his inventory that he had which made me think and something jeff reader and i want to look at is by adding that extra cord are you actually getting a little more strength out of the truss because you've added structure to it? Now, it may be a net zero sum where you're making it weaker uh, because of the individual uh, pipe that you're adding may fail. But are you gaining strength because you're not creating failure in one of the truss components? And you're loading it at node points because all those cross pieces that you're cheeseboroing to are at a node point. So there's there's some creative solutions out there that people have come up with to deal with their own inventory to solve some of these challenges. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yes. I, yeah, that's one of the things that uh, we struggle with. I mean, you know, it's 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 the classic case. By the time it gets to the rigging company or the riggers to figure it out, the production's already building it. And and now the challenge is, I, you know, there's a million custom things I'd love to have built for a project, but there's not time. So it's forced us into, okay, what do we have in the shop? And, you know, my operations manager will tell you, because you don't throw anything away. And I'm going, yeah, I know it's a fault. I know we got containers full of stuff that, you know, we had custom built or a bracket that we built for something or whatever. And I, and I won't let them get rid of it, even though we probably don't use them for four or five years. There's that one project that you can use that same thing for over and over for other different things. Um, but trying to solve a problem and turnbuckle solved huge problems for us years ago uh supplier came to us with with a two inch turnbuckle half inch by two inch turnbuckle so it's got a 2200 pound working load limit which is ideal for our business and uh, two inches of adjustment um and uh she brought it in and she goes is this something you guys would use and i looked at the thing and i'm like 
Yeah, because I immediately envisioned it being inside a 12-inch box truss. Right. Uh, and and so we bought them, and uh, our shop people are like, what are we going to use these for? I said, you know what? I don't, I've got some ideas right now, but I don't really know. But I know we're going to use them. And at one point, we're never going to have enough of these things. And that seems to be the case. I mean, we own hundreds of them now. We never seem to have enough of them. Um, we buy a new custom piece of truss. And we start using it. And it's like, well, why do we have to have this? We already have that and that. And I'm going, yeah, but this does this specifically. And then we never have enough of that. So I think that anybody that's thinking about starting a rigging rental company, just be prepared to never have enough of what you need because you never have enough of it. Yep. It doesn't matter how many thousands of hoists and trust, feet of trust you have. It'll never be enough, and it never ends. <laughs> it brings up the joke of, well, I need all the warehouse space. No, if you're doing your job properly, it's all out making you money, and you don't need any warehouse space. Yeah, no, I that, that, that couldn't be more true than right now. I mean, we are, our model has been built on 30% of our inventory not being there, and right now it's all back, and it's... it's uh, it's a struggle. Stacked up. Yeah. yeah. What is your worst fear as a rigger besides dropping something? Uh, what's going on right now? You know, uh, what's, what's the future of the rigging business for the theatrical world? I mean, it's not going to go away, but, you know, um, what are customers and clients, and this is more from a business perspective, um, but, um, you know, I say, th- well, to kind of get back to your question about, you know, uh, next to dropping something or that kind of thing, I think that that uh, that would be an unknown at the moment. You know, I think uh, doing or using something that fails or uh, has failed regularly because there's a problem with the product of some sort um, uh could be one of those things that that is a, a fear but more than that i think that you know i think a lot of that stuff we we can control and what you know what's going on with the, the coronavirus and all this hubbub now is we it's completely out of our control and you know the entertainment industry and the rigging business in particular commodity driven industry for the most part it's uh it's going to be a long time, I think, before it comes back solid to where we left it. I mean, where we left it, it was phenomenal. Everybody, you know, I mentioned earlier, even Dennis had rigging and trusts and rigging motors and stuff in their at the conventions. I don't know how much of that's going to come back. And, uh, you know, we're Cirque du Soleil's shutting down. Um, there's going to be a lot of people looking for work and, and just not a lot of work. I think in in the near term for sure and next year is going to be a struggle I think so I I, you know they've always there's always that discussion about how the entertainment industry in general is recession proof well yeah but if you can't meet face to face with other people um, we're doomed you know that's that's my fear and you know ironically enough and for any of those listeners that are starting out in this business or started out when the business was thriving, when I started, I worked for the first 10 years of my career thinking that I was going to lose my job at any minute or work would just come to an end. And, uh, you know, luckily after 36 years, it hadn't. 
But quite frankly, I'd been planning for an event like this uh, financially my entire career. And I think for those of you that are starting out in this business or want to get into it, if you don't think like that, then you should choose a different business because, um, you know, the last 10 years, everybody was working two jobs at the same time because there was just so much work and trying to find production readers to staff jobs was a challenge for everybody. And finding enough people to fill the calls was a challenge for everybody. And, you know, that's not the case right now, but financially, you know, build a plan, start with three months, then go to six months, go to a year plan for two years. Um, that would be my advice to anybody. Uh, and, and my biggest fear was something like this happening and and not having the finances to survive it. So it, it sounds hard to do, but it's really not. You can save money and live within your means and, and build build that rainy day fund because you're going to need it. Yep. And we had alluded to that before that uh, that may be something that everyone starts to learn out of this situation is to build that fund and to make wiser choices financially so that when something like this happens again, we're all individually a little more prepared. So, so I'm going to ask you a question and I usually don't put a caveat on this one, but I'm going to just because I think there's an obvious answer to it for you which is besides Rocky, who have some of the mentors in entertainment rigging been for you? Um, well, there was, uh, there were several people that worked at stage rigging when I ca- got there. And, and this is where, I, I mean, I, I look at back at this now um, and, and think about how fortunate I was to happen to walk into stage rigging and I'd worked with some of the guys and I went to high school with some of the guys that were working there that were a few years older than me. Um, but just being able to go in there in a casual setting and, and chat about rigging um, was huge. Uh, you know, Roy Bickle um, worked with him quite a bit early on in my career. Um, and Roy was always very patient and, and uh, but also very straightforward you know, there was no bones about it with him. And, uh, and then this guy named Brent Anderson, uh, who has, he's been retired out of the business for years and years and years, but he was with Rocky on the Pink Floyd, uh, wall tour in 1980. And, uh, he rigged some other tours. Uh, awesome, awesome rigger, great guy, total gearhead, uh, you know, or, or, component, you know, he always found some really exotic rigging hardware and stuff. I don't know how he found this stuff, but, he was a big influence and uh, also a, a very you know, soft-spoken, patient guy. Um, uh, he was still a good friend of mine today, but he's he was a, a big help. And then just the, the rest of the guys uh, at stage rigging at the time. Um, a guy named Bill Huddle that worked there for a few years. Theater, more of a theater background. They learned a lot of stuff from him on counterweight systems and all that, you know, constructing and installing them with him. And uh, uh, Marty Cohen, uh, who was came out of the same school or same school program that I did, uh, was was very helpful. And Howard Campbell, uh, who was the 
He was out of uh, Stagehands Union in San Jose, 134. He was also out of the small local in San Mateo that we all worked in um, at the time, 409. Howard's responsible really for getting me the job at Stage Rigging. And uh, he's semi-retired now, but he ran the um, uh, San Jose Arena or SAP Arena or whatever, I forget what, they, what it's called now. But uh, he was extremely influential and also uh, uh, taught me a lot before I started working for Stage Rigging about rigging. That's how I got even more interested. So, you know, there's hundreds of people that have, have been great. And, you know, the beautiful thing about the rigging community is that, you know, it's, it's not uncommon to reach out to your competitors um, and ask them what's going on or, or, you know, what are you, what are you guys into for this or vice versa? And uh, I, I think that that's something that we, we uh, as an industry, as small as it is, need to, to keep that, dialogue going which is why we're such a big fan of the reading symposium throw that plug out there for the reading symposium yeah the, the, the new world rigging symposium which is held in conjunction with usitt every normal year i should say um <laughs> is a great opportunity we basically it's a, a two-day mini conference dealing with entertainment rigging uh, lots of great speakers, diverse speakers. We've had conversations again, 2019, we had conversations about diversity in rigging, uh, what we can do to give opportunities to others who want to pursue rigging as a career, um, both based on gender as well as ethnicity. We've talked about engineering. We've talked about automation and the development of that with Gareth uh, doing a presentation. Again, 2019, we had a uh, a retirement party of sorts for Rocky and talking about his career. And he spoke and gave the keynote. So it's a great opportunity to learn more about the industry, to meet some people. And I think a lot of us who are heavily involved in the ESTA technical standards program and a lot of the organizations, yes, we're competitors, uh, but we tend to acknowledge the fact that there's enough business for everyone, that some people have strengths in certain areas that others don't, and that there's always an opportunity that when you build the relationship, they may find a need for your skill set and reach out to you to work with them on a project and vice versa. So it's important to have a competitive drive, but it's also uh, important to keep it in check and in balance and to understand that you can't be everything to everyone. Focus on what you're really good at and be great at it. I've said that numerous times before. Yeah, no, that's well said. I, uh, you know, you mentioned the technical standards program, and I, I absolutely love that process. I, I <laughs> you know, when, when Rocky started thinking about retirement, he started telling me about this and, and talking about, you know, somebody's got to carry on representing us at the at the standards program. And at first I was kind of like, I don't, this is not for me. I don't want to sit around and talk about this all day long and figure it out. And then I got on a task group and got involved and absolutely love working on standards um, and the meetings. I think the meetings are awesome. I, I look forward to the, the, the person or in-person meetings again, even if they are down in 
Memphis Lake, Texas, which not the most exciting area, but no offense to Texas or Westlake. But um, but what I like about those is that you do get focused on a subject and uh, you can really dig into it as an industry and, and make it better. It has, Bottom line. you know, for me, it changed my path. I started working in 2009, 2010 with Rocky on the first version of what would become E1.39, which is the fall arrest standard for portable structures in the entertainment industry. And I, I've mentioned before, I'm in a room with Rocky and Michael Reed and Sean Nolan and Mike Wells of Extreme Structures and Will Todd from Tomcat and Trey Allen originally from James Thomas Engineering as well as Wendy Holt, who's from Hollywood. She represents the training trust out in Hollywood and me. And I'm like, what am I doing in this room? I have no credentials to be here. And I'm actually the one who came up with the title of the document because it originally was temporary structures. And there was concern about the fact that temporary in the building code has a very specific definition and we want to avoid that on this particular subject and so i said hey why don't we copy what the nec says for article 520 which is portable dimming systems so that's how we came up with portable that's how i got to meet rocky that's how you and i met is through the technical standards program i've met a lot of people through that program that i would not necessarily meet through working for a regional lighting company and what i learned through the technical standards program and the relationships i formed there is what allowed me to grow into the rigor i am today and a business owner and i learned so much and it's it's a great thing of so you're creating a standard. Someone will bring something up that you never thought of. They'll challenge you on a concept. And as you mentioned earlier, now you have to defend your point and you start going through it and maybe you change your position, which is okay because the end result is a better document, a better resource for the rest of the people in our industry. And that's the, the result that we're going for. So you can become an observer of the technical standards program through ESTA for now. Here's what I don't remember. There is an annual fee to be involved with the technical standards program. It's a hundred dollars. I cannot off the top of my head. I'll put a link up uh, in the show notes. I believe that is required to be an observer as well. And basically, an observer means you'll get all the updates from the meetings, but you can't vote on things. Or you can be an active member. And when I say active, you have to participate. If you don't, you get knocked down to observer status. Um, but there are a lot of people who do observer, and then you can see how the sausage is made. But it's a great experience. I have several friends who are observers who just, they like watching the process and, and hearing how we're developing things. So. Yeah, that's my, my little tangent on the TSP. No, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I, I would have done that too. <laughs> it is. It's, a, it's an awesome program. And um, I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's legitimizing what we've been doing for years. You know, what we were making up 25, 30 years ago is now legit. Uh, 
and there's documents to point to, and those documents have, have been extremely helpful. I, uh, I was involved with 156, which is the hang point uh, design, um, hang point design and use and maintenance, et cetera, for uh, you know temporary points used in unconventional venues. And uh, ironically enough, one of the big tech companies here in the Bay Area built an, uh, an event space, and they asked me to write a uh, not so much an RFP, but a guideline as to what they need to design to and uh, and how uh, and what they need to look for when they're building an event space because this particular tech company has locations all over the world and they want to build event spaces in all their venues or all their campuses. And so I put together some basics and out there that Bill Gorland, uh, I asked him for advice on a couple of things, and he was super helpful uh, with McLaren Engineering. And then uh, I basically, you know, I wrote up about two pages worth of information on basic stuff that they they should have and then need to have, and uh, and then pointed them towards 156. And uh, they came back to me and they asked me where I got the document, where the, where the 156 document came from, and I told them about the entertainment standards program and uh they were extremely excited and uh and i think proceeded to pick up a lot more of them because it gives them some guidance and uh you know it was kind of fun to hear that because it just sort of legitimized what we we all work so hard for um to uh, better the industry the other evening there was an esta um hospitality suite zoom meeting so normally when we do our quarterly esta meetings there's a hospitality suite which will gather in after all the meetings are done for the evening so we did one virtually and aaron grave who is the executive director for esta was talking about how she was blown away by the fact that at some point in the last three months someone from nasa downloaded the dmx 512a standard and she's like, imagine what they're using that for. <laughs> and so that's kind of the fun things is sometimes, you know, the first standard the rigging working group produced was the wire rope ladder standard. Um, in part because it is fairly defined, wasn't it a very vast subject uh, and would be easier to produce and get out. And there's a Nancy standard for wire rope ladders. And it's not something you would think about until you have to use a wire rope ladder and you start saying, huh, I really hope this is made to some quality or to some standards. Well, now there's a standard for them because before that, if you happen to be loading in a tour with a wire rope ladder and an ocean inspector showed up, they're going to, they would traditionally look at those things and say, what are you doing? There's no way we're going to let you climb that. So now that we've produced an ANSI standard, we can say, hey, these are produced to an ANSI standard, and it helps educate others into what we're doing, and we don't just get told no. By the way, uh, yes, all involvement with the technical standards program, regardless of voting status, is a $100 a year participation fee. I will throw up the link for the membership application. That's worth it. It is absolutely worth it. Oh, absolutely. All right. Well, we've been going for about an hour and 20 minutes. 
We've had some great discussions. When you mentioned 60 to 90 minutes, I'm like, holy crap, how am I going to fill that? I'm good for 20 minutes. I I always have that anxiety at the 20 minute mark. I'm like, wow, we've covered like five or six topics. I hope we get 40 (laughs) minutes out of this. And then without fail, I blink and I'm like, wow, we're going to have to do another episode sometime. Um, Because there was certainly some discussion that, and again, we'll do another episode uh, about talking about uh, stage rigging as a company and how it started. I, I mentioned at the beginning that it is the company that Rocky Paulson founded um, and then eventually sold. And its history, it is, again, one of the well-known rigging companies. You guys have done a lot of Super Bowl performances. So that is certainly a topic that I think we can cover in, in another episode. I'm going to ask you the real difficult question. What is your best or worst rigger joke? Uh, best or worst rear joke? Um, geez, I, I, you know, the, the only one I can think of, even that one's not, I don't know if it'd be, I, I don't really have one to be honest with you. I mean, there's, we, we, we have a, we have some, issues here in in the bay area with uh some labor unions that you know the the stagehands and the decorators uh, are always kind of not so much anymore but they were battling over jurisdictions so you know the, the joke for years was kind of like what do you call a rigger without a rope a decorator um, and there you go that works <laughs> so uh, you know and i've i've worked hard and and i'll just finish with this note that if you're going to rig whether you're rigging in a boom lift a scissor lift a catwalk on an open beam or whatever take a rope um too many people take off and they go to the oh, i'm just going to run up and fix this and they don't have a rope and that was something that rocky used to pound into our heads as a young man coming up in the business was to take a rope and uh I don't know how many convention centers I've been in where I watch the guys come down to pick up a chain and back up and hook it in. You know back down and get a Take a rope. Yep. If you're the electrician, have a sea wrench. If you're a rigger, have a rope. Yeah, exactly. The shoes you have to fill are bigger. Excellent. Well, Chris, thank you very much for spending some time with me talking about your journey in the entertainment rigging. I think we touched on some great topics and your insight on certain things is certainly helpful to the listeners. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. I, uh, I appreciate being on here. I'm happy to do it again. I could, uh, you know, it was easy to talk for an hour and 25 minutes about, you know, stuff we love to do and I love to do and uh, happy to do it again. Absolutely. And if, you know, unfortunately the, the trend is going to hold where a lot of us are out of work for an extended period of time. I'm trying to do these every week, so we're going to need lots of content. So we'll keep plugging forward. Yeah, no problem. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, keep the pin in the shackle.